All right, well, go ahead, uh, get your Bibles out. We're going to be in Luke chapter 15. That's kind of the whole, the whole deal, whole enchilada this morning. Um, and it is a lot in Luke chapter 15, so we're not going to read through the whole thing. Um, let me give you a little context on the, on the series, kind of where we're at, why we're doing this, and uh, what I hope that you get from the message this morning, then we'll just jump right in. So um, we are in a, a series that began back in January, talking about essential rhythms of the faith. And we've been through prayer, we've been through uh, the reading of God's word, We've been through community, uh, and now we're on this mission section where we're talking about the mission um, and our role in it. Um, I, I want to remind you that um, this is not something new. This is not just something New Testament. That there's always been this vertical and horizontal component to uh, our faith, and there isn't really. You can't even separate them. It's not one. There's not two parts. It's one thing. It's to love God is to love other people. Um, even when when God came to Abraham. Um, and said, hey, I'm going to make your people of Israel unique. Um, you know, you're going to be blessed among all the nations. He had this little phrase in there that we go back to a lot where he says, I'm blessing you so that you might be a blessing. There's always that kind of dual side to what's going on. The gospel is good news for us, and as it's good news for us, it's meant to be good news for the world. It, it doesn't just stop with this, hey, it's just me and God and my Bible and my journal, and that's my entire faith. I mean, that, that's fine. We want you to connect with God. We want you to pray. We want you to Journal. We want you to be in community, but it doesn't, it doesn't stop there. There's, there's this ever going out of the gospel. So that's, we can't forget that rhythm. And I think where we do forget that rhythm, we stunt our own growth um, as followers of Jesus, disciples of Jesus. Um, we stunt our own faith um, in the sense that we, you know, a mission for me has, has meant a lot of sacrifices, a lot of steps of faith, having God need to show up in ways that I didn't think he would, and there's a huge part of what God does in us when we're willing to trust him in these things that we're maybe otherwise averse to or worried about. So, so that's why mission is important as a rhythm. What I want to talk about this morning is not so much um, specifically what you need to do to be on mission. Um, I, I don't believe uh, that there is this one-size-fits-all, this is what mission is and, and how you do it, um, but there is certainly a heart to mission and, and something that uh, is critical to kind of evaluate in ourselves and to see um, and, and to know how to respond as God's raising that up with us. And that's what I'm focusing on this morning is what is it, what is the heart of someone who is on mission? What is the heart of having the heart, and really what, that's simultaneous with what is it, what is having the heart of Jesus look like? What, it's like kind of a simultaneous, it's uh, um, simultaneous, that's not the word I'm looking for. Um, anyway, it's, it's, it's the same thing. Um, so, we're going to look at Luke chapter 15, which is a very, very, very um, well-known passage in Scripture. If you've been in church for any length of time, especially this church, we probably reference prodigal son a lot. I do. Um, and so there's not a lot of newness in this, but I, there is some focus. Um, so we don't have time to read through all the stories, um, but what I will do is I'm going to read, I'm going to give you a little bit of immediate context I'll summarize the stories, and then we'll go back and reflect on the meaning of them um, when it comes to mission. Okay, so um, some immediate context right before we read is just, uh, remember, okay, Jesus is in the, like, thriving part of his ministry right now, and he has been going in synagogues, and he's been teaching, and as he's been teaching, people say he's teaching with authority, like he's not like any other teacher. 
He's been going around, he's been healing people, and crowds have been gathering around him, right? He's been doing, performing miracles and all these things. And all the while, the Pharisees have been really bothered by what Jesus is doing uh, for multiple reasons. There's many layers in there that we're not going to go into all of why. But the bottom line is they were kind of the established religious people of the day, and Jesus came and basically turned over the apple cart or whatever, you know, euphemism you want to use. He just, like, just uprooted what everyone thought it was to be religious, to love God and to love other people. I don't think Pharisees would have argued that loving God and loving other people were important. It was how they went about doing it that Jesus really uprooted. Um, and so he had things like Sermon on the Mount. You've heard it said this, but I say this. You heard it said this. So he's always challenging their ideas. The Pharisees are obviously very contentious with Jesus. Now, what we see in Luke 15 is one of those reasons why. And Jesus tells all of these parables that we're about to go through as a response to the Pharisees because they are frustrated with him. They're angry with him and they're undermining him. Um, and, and so verse 15, verse one, or sorry, chapter 15, verse one gives us the context of that. And then we'll go through the three stories and circle back. Okay, so Luke 15, verse one. Now the tax collectors, those dirty accountants um, and... Uh, sorry, just joking. Um, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, Jesus, okay? And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, and they're saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. That's the context of what he's about to say. Then he goes into three parables, which I'm going to summarize. We'll, we'll call them the parables of lost things, okay? So the first is the parable of lost sheep. And Jesus goes in to tell this story, and he says, look, which of you, if you were a shepherd and you had a, you know, hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, which of you wouldn't leave behind the 99? The assumption is that a shepherd would always go after the lost sheep. You can, you can debate, well, that seems so unsafe for the 99 he leaves behind. No, the assumption here is that's what every shepherd would do. They would leave behind the 99, probably make sure they're safe, fine, but go after the one who's lost, right? And when that shepherd returns home, what happens? What's supposed to happen? What's the shepherd going to be like? Happy or sad? We'll just start it that way. Ha happy or sad? Happy. Okay. The shepherd's, <laughs> this is very simple. Okay. The shepherd's going to rejoice. The shepherd's going to be happy that he found the lost sheep. That's like Jesus saying, this is a no-brainer. And it's worth it for him to go after the lost sheep. And we all know that when he finds it, he'll celebrate. This morning when I was coming here, I had to get in the car, I leave pretty early in the morning. I ended up being much later than I usually am because I couldn't find my keys. And um, I still didn't find my keys. I was rifling through and it, and, and it became like, I found Katie's keys and she's like, just take my, my keys. I'm like, okay, but I lost my keys and I need to know what it's like. I have to find them because it's going to nag at me and nag at me. And so I kept, I pulled all of the clothes out of my closet. Like maybe I left it in my, my pants and I'm like, I need to get going, but no, I can't stop because I've lost something. You know that feeling. Well, our next little parable is about that, right? He says, uh, which of you had 10 coins? If this woman lost one of those coins, knowing she had 10, but now she only finds nine, isn't going to hunt for it. And when she hunts for it, is she going to be, and, and finds it, is she going to be happy or sad? Happy, okay? Okay, there's a theme here. Um, last story, where it gets more personal and more meaningful than a coin or a sheep. Imagine a father with two sons. 
One son comes um, to the father and says, I want my inheritance now. Now, you know, I want you to imagine just for some context that you, if you have a living father or mother or relative and you go to that living father or mother relative and say, give me what I'm going to get when you die right now. How would that go over? Good or bad? We're going to stay real simple. Good or bad? Bad. Okay. That's, that's like not cool now and it wasn't cool then. Okay. So the son comes, he asks for his inheritance early and you know, I'm just imagining this kid like 17, 18, 19 years old. Do you think he spends his money good or bad? Bad, right? Okay. Um, he goes and he squanders it on prostitutes and whatever, and he just ends up with nothing in a pig pen, eating with the pigs. And it dawns on him in that moment that it was much better to be at his father's house, right? And I mean, just a little pause here. This is a very, very, very compelling story. Because if you've ever, hopefully, found yourself in a way far from Jesus, where you're like, hey, I've gone down a road I didn't intend to go down, I've landed where I didn't want to be, and I recognize at this moment that while I was a fool for taking the inheritance early, while I was a fool for leaving, I want to be back. Okay? That's a beautiful moment. In fact, many of you pray for that moment for your own children. Many of you prayed that moment for your spouse. Many of you prayed that moment for yourself because that moment of realization that it was better in my father's house is a very important and critical part of the gospel. It's a beautiful thing. So the son realizes it was better in my father's house. I'm going to return to my father's house. And, where does he, and how does he find the father when he comes back? Was the father mad? What, happy. Yes, thank you. You're getting it. The father's happy. Was he happy or sad? He was happy. He runs out. He embraces his son. They rejoice. But the story is not over because Jesus told this story not just so that we would celebrate the happy things that happen when lost things return, but he wanted to make a counterpoint. There's another brother in the picture. And that brother, was he happy or sad that his brother came home? Sad, mixed at best, right? Okay. Well, if I give him the benefit of the doubt, I'll say he was mixed. But judging by my house and my kids, I would say he was sad. You know, there's this contention. Um, so he was, he was sad that his brother's home, and he was sad not probably because he didn't love his brother. I'm sure he loved his brother. He was sad because of what that son's returning home meant about him. And what did it mean about him? It meant that all his life, he did the right thing. He stayed by his father thick and thin. He didn't break any of the rules. He wasn't caught in all of the typical, stereotypical ways. He was faithful and good and true, and he gets the same reward in the end. In fact, in his mind, he's like, you never killed the fattened calf for me. You're killing it for him. And look what he did, right? So he's sad, not because he doesn't love his brother, but he's sad because of what his brother's return means for him. Um, and the parable just kind of ends there. It ends there. Now, I want to talk, we're going to talk about mission, okay, for a minute. And when I was growing up in the church, we'd often use the phrase in youth group and 
and uh, in the church about the lost, that it's our job to reach the lost, to reach the lost. The lost, the lost need, we need to um, fund camp because we're going to reach lost kids. We need to go on mission so we can, um, you know, reach the lost uh, nations and tribes and the people who haven't heard the gospel yet. There's as much as focus on the lost, which almost is simultaneous with mission. But here's what I want us to begin with. I think it's an unhealthy place to think of the lost when we think of mission, okay? I want us to start to think a little bit differently about it. I want us to think about lostness, not the lost. Because Jesus tells this parable to religious leaders to point out that while that they, one, didn't care about people who were lost, and at the very same time were just as lost, if not more lost, than the ones they called the lost, okay? So that's the important part here. If we're going to talk at all about mission, we don't, we can't, if we start to make it a thing that we do for others to reach others, we've missed the whole power of the gospel. The power of the gospel is I'm lost, not I was lost. I'm lost. There's lostness in me, and the gospel is good for all lostness, right? And you have lostness in you, and it all, we all have the same answer, Jesus, okay? There's not the answer for you, the answer for me, or what you need to do, or how you pick up your life and fix it. There's, we are lost people. We need Jesus, and we need to see the nature of our lostness if we're going to be effective in mission. What the nature of lost, what, what being in touch with the nature of lostness means is that the gospel is still relevant to me. It's not something that just must be distributed to you. It's the gospel is relevant to me now because I'm still, in some ways, tossed back and forth, caught up either being the hyper-religious or the sinner, the one who runs away or the angry son at home. But either way, the father's welcoming us home to the table. He wants to be with us. And it requires kind of the same solution for both. So mission, like we will not be in touch with mission if we do not deeply in touch with our own lostness. Um, because that lostness breeds gratitude for the gospel and humility, which is required which is absolutely required if you're going to represent Jesus to the world, right? Because what do we see the biggest critiques in Jesus' time of the religious leaders is that they're hypocrites, right? They're throwing stones, they're angry, they're pointing out little things of, that's wrong in these people. When they have their own hypocr you know, hypocrisy going on, they stand on street corners to look very righteous, and Jesus is like, that's that's like a snake. That's worse than, than this kid over here who, you know, squandered his money or that woman over there caught in adultery. Like, it's all, we're all lost, okay? Jesus is leveling the playing field. All right. Now, um, since you guys were very good students, um, the point of each of these parables is that when lost return home, how should we feel? Happy or sad? Happy, Happy right? maybe more powerful words, is everyone is, in each of these parables, they're talking about rejoicing and celebrating and, 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 and being filled with this incredible sense of, um, I don't know, guys, joy that, that people who are lost are finding their father again, right? 
And he says it into response with the fact that the Pharisees don't like that he's hanging out with the people he's hanging out with. I mean, that's what is the catalyst to this. He's like, you're cranky and you're whining and you're, you think I'm hanging out with the wrong people, but you clearly don't even get what makes me happy or what should make you happy, right? This should be, this, this should make us all so happy that these people want to be with Jesus in any capacity, in any way, right? What, what's, what's challenging, I think, about these emotional um, parables, like where they, where they say like, hey, and, and, and now we celebrate and rejoice, is those kinds of things you can't fake, right? You can't conjure it up. If I told you, celebrate now, be happy now, be joyful now, that's like you could maybe smile and show me signs of joy, or you could clap your hands or yell if you think that that maybe appeared to be joyful. But joy isn't these external things you do. It's what's going on here, right? And that's really hard to fake. And so in the Bible, when, when, we, when Jesus anchors teachings or when the scriptures anchored into these emotional things that happen in us, what he's really saying is, look, if you're not excited for lost people to meet Jesus, if you don't see your lostness and need for Jesus, if that doesn't compel you in some way, that should be a, a warning sign of what's going on in here. That's what, that's what he's trying to point at. Like, you know, I like to think, you know, the best of my children at times, but um, when one of them succeeds and the other one fails, or when one of them, like my biggest pet peeve is when one of them fails and the other one finds joy in their failure, right? That'll happen all the time. Like, oh, hey, 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 tell them what you did at school. Tell them how you got in trouble. Hey, you know, tell them what your teacher said. Tell them what your friend did, you know? I hate that, right? And you can kind of live in like a make-believe world that they all love each other and they want the best for each other until that very moment when you see what's going on in their heart. And it's jealousy or it's, um, you know, whatever that resentment is, it's that lack of celebration for the other person's victory or that over-gleeful celebration on their failure that really shows you what's going on here, right? They wouldn't ever articulate it if you tried to talk to them about it or when we try to talk to them about it, they deny it. That's like us, right? Like if you went to a Pharisee and you said, love God and love people, what would they say? Oh yeah, this has been written in the scripture for all of time. They would agree with it, right? Cognitively, they'd understand, but it's in their joy that we find what's really going on, right? It's in that moment that they can't hide behind what their intellectual argument is about what they, yeah, I care for the poor, but, you know, I kind of like when I come across a poor person in a neighborhood that I feel unsure about, I kind of, you know, step the other way and get away. Well, okay, that tells what's really going on, right? We can all cognitively acknowledge things, which we do all the time, but it's these emotional reactions to give us a glimpse into what's really going on. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, why aren't you celebrating? Right? And this is like fundamental. Like, why would, a, why would the other chicks not celebrate when the hen is gathering all the chicks under her wing? What is it about that that you can't be joyful for them? It points to some of our own inabilities. <clears throat> now, I think it also shows us <clears throat> When it comes to mission, there are a lot of things that we'll celebrate in the church without, <clears throat> without trying. I don't need to be prodded to celebrate certain things in the church. 
We'll celebrate compelling speakers and compelling worship music, and we'll celebrate, um, I mean, for years and years and years, uh, it's like embarrassing to admit this, but honestly, I mean, all, I would feel successful in ministry if the ministry I was involved in was growing, right? So when I was in college and there were a lot of more people coming to our ministry than there were when we started, I felt like, wow, we were really, really, really successful. The Holy Spirit's really moving. It didn't really matter if those were believers or not believers. It didn't really matter if they were church or unchurched. In fact, if they were leaving another church just to come to ours, it still made me feel good that we were doing we were more compelling, right? But again, if I, if I think critically about like what's going on, is I'm celebrating my own success, my own draw of people, my own, this own place, and really not necessarily always concerned about God's heart for the lost or the poor or the hurting, right? Um, so we can celebrate lots of things. That's kind of on the big scale, but even more personally, um, I think I've shared this example with you uh, several times, but for me, it's a very cutting test that I ask myself regularly as a parent. Um, I was talking with a pastor one time, and he was like, you know, here's a, here's a question to ask yourself um, when you're parenting your children about what really matters the most to you. And he says, would you rather have your children go through teenage pregnancy, addiction, divorce, but in the midst of those things, know that they need Jesus and come to a genuine faith and dependence on Jesus? Or would you rather celebrate them getting into the greatest schools? Would you rather celebrate them not making mistakes, being faithful in their own marriage, um, never struggling with, you know, um, in their relationships, whatever, but not be sure that they know their own lostness and need for Jesus. Now, I think as a parent, the question is, well, I want both, right? <laughs> like, I want, I, they, they don't need to be mutually exclusive. But if it was a, would you rather, if it really was mutually exclusive, I think it points a little bit to what I celebrate, what I value, and what Jesus values. And I think in the end, Jesus is hanging out with the sinners and tax collectors, because he's more interested in them realizing their need than he is in the righteous person who sits there and is sure that they got it all right and that they have everything they need. That's the heart of where mission exists. Mission exists because lostness exists, right? And we are compelled to be on mission because we're in touch with our own lostness and need for the gospel. Okay, so now if we're going to ask what mission looks like for us, I want to look just a little bit at what Jesus is saying through these parables about what mission looks like for him. And I'm going to make this distinct distinction primarily coming out of this verse. Let's see, where is it? It's a uh, I think it's verse 6. He says it's the sheep uh, and during the sheep parable he says and when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so, which means this is why I'm telling you this, I tell you there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So Jesus is kind of making this distinction between the sinner and the righteous. 
And the irony of that distinction is that there's sin in both of those categories that he's trying to point out. But let, for our purposes, let's, let's talk a little bit about how Jesus deals with people who are lost in sin. Okay, we're going to put it on this corner of the stage. And then over on this corner, we're going to put people who are lost in their own righteousness, because that's what he's also trying to depict between the stories of prodigal sons. Now, how Jesus deals with those two situations is vastly different, okay? And And they're both part of his mission. So for Jesus to be on mission, it means that he will go to those who are lost in sin. And this is sin like you would think of every typical kind of sin. This would be, you know, lying, deceiving, adultery, jealousy, covetousness, you know, um, I mean, so prototypical like the prodigal son, right, who takes his money and squanders it and runs away. We have all been lost in sin. We have traded eternal things and our relationship with God for for temporal pleasure, for things that are cutting or biting or hurtful to other people, hurtful to ourselves, that is what we would think of prototypically as sin. And we've all been lost there. And if you don't think you've been lost in sin, you don't understand the extent of your own sin. You should go back to the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus outlays like, look, sin is everywhere, in everybody, in all capacities. We're lost. We're all lost in sin. But now, Now, the question is, when Jesus is on mission to the sinner, what does Jesus do? What does he do? He seeks out the sinner, right? That's what he's trying to say with the the wandering sheep. If one sheep goes astray, what is the shepherd going to do? He's going to go after that sheep. And that is the story of God. I mean, that's why Jesus even came, right? That is, that is the story of the gospel throughout the entire Bible is that the God of this universe who created us, we have been lost in sin and we all have our own little pet sin and we all have different, you know, ways that that looks for each of us, but we've all chosen many things over God and worshiped many things over the living God of this universe. And in doing so, the thing that you can be sure about, the goodness of the God that we worship is that when we are lost in sin, he comes to us. That's how he does his mission when we're lost in sin. And that is, I'm sure of it, how many of you met Jesus. It wasn't because you did a research study. It was because in a moment of need or a moment of realization or a moment of conviction, you were desperate and Jesus met you there. And someone maybe did bring you to church and you heard the gospel or somebody invited you to a camp where you encountered the gospel or maybe you had a Pauline moment where you're on the road to Damascus and Jesus just shows up and you're never the same again. The most compelling thing about this God that we worship is that he, despite our infidelity over and over and over again, he seeks us out. He doesn't just let us go. He doesn't give us the sum of our own works and, you know, sorry, you chose wrong. You're out of here. He's like, you chose wrong. We all know it. Whether you admit it or not, I'm coming after you. And that's the beauty of like the story of Hosea in the Old Testament, right? Where Hosea goes after Gomer, his prostitute wife, and it's supposed to represent the relationship of God to Israel. God is Hosea and we are Gomer. Israel's Gomer. But it doesn't matter. God is coming after those who are lost in sin. 
Now, let's come over to this side. I think we've all also been lost in our own righteousness, too. A lot of times that takes the shape of, uh, you know, religion, being right about this thing or that thing. Um, it's, I don't think it's only relegated to the church. I, I, I see it in the corporate world all the time. Now it just feels like, you know, people just are so sure and confident and arrogant about their way of seeing the world and the things that they do. They, they don't need anybody and they don't need anything. That's what it is to be lost in righteousness. Unfortunately, that happens in the church, which it shouldn't happen. I mean, it's understandable why it happens in the world, but it's, it's like, I think, heartbreaking to God. And if you sit for a moment and think about it, it's mind-blowing to us that a people who are only a people because of our need and desperation for the gospel would come to the conclusion that like we're not as broken as the next person, that's pretty perverted, but it is what it is to be lost in rightness or righteousness, thinking that you got it and you don't need. Now, what Jesus is trying to point out through the story of the prodigal son is that both are really harmful and both are bad. They harm each other. So this now prodigal son brother can't celebrate with the older brother because they can't like have a relationship together because they're mad at each other. The father can't have his two sons together. And this guy might end up sitting out of the party the entire time lost in his own righteousness. Now, here's the question though. How does Jesus go on mission to the righteous? usually in the form of rebuking them, and often publicly. Think about all the things he says to the Pharisees. If you, if you don't, if, that, if that's not in your brain, just read Matthew 23. Read what Jesus says to the religious leaders of the day. He is very vocal and very harsh and very cutting because they are so arrogant and so proud and so self-righteous that the only way for them to need, know the gospel is to have their knees cut out from under them. Now, the question is, if you had to choose one of those two ways of Jesus dealing with you, which would you want? I'd rather, you know, have him pursue me and be kind to me and come and give me the benefit of the doubt, like eat with me like he ate with the sinners and the tax collectors and be gentle with me like he was with the woman caught in adultery. And yet everything in me wants to present like I'm the righteous person, right? And yet we know what he does with all those who are sure of their own righteousness is he cuts them down at the knees. I don't want to be cut down at the knees. So it's this interesting conundrum. And in the middle of all of this is the way that he deals with the repentant, Okay. So whether you're lost in sin or lost in righteousness, what does he do with those who repent? Is he happy or sad? Happy, right? And he embraces them. This is the story of the son. He embraces them. And had the older brother come into dinner, he'd embrace them together. It doesn't matter from which end you repent from, but repentance is the posture that must predicate all the mission that we do. Right? Because if, we, if it doesn't, then we're going to tell somebody something, but we're not living in the reality and the good news, which is, look, I'm totally lost, but Jesus, right? That's, I mean, that's the gospel. And I've, sometimes I'm lost here, and I go back to this, and sometimes I live way too long over here, but the place that we, the posture we can be 
darn sure that we are embraced and loved and accepted and celebrated is this place of repentance. It's a regular discipline, and I don't often or haven't often thought of it as a needed discipline in even the mission that we're about to do, right? That's, I think, a huge part of it. Now, okay, that's how Jesus has been on mission, mission to us. Um, I want to talk just practically how do you and I be on mission as a regular rhythm of our faith? Now, before I tell you exactly what it's going to take and what to do, I want to share with you, I was listening to a podcast, and there was this psychologist, uh, Danny Kahneman, who was given the Nobel Prize like two or three years ago um, for his work in um, economics and, and stuff. Anyway, he's like 83 or something now, really old guy, got the, uh, I mean, really young, if you're close to that age, really young. <laughs> um, and he got the Nobel Prize. And at the, something that maybe like just struck me is at the end of the podcast, the um, co-host says, hey, would you just give any words of wisdom to kind of us young, um, up-and-coming people as, you know, words of psychology or economics? And his response was, um, his response, no, over the years I've made it, I've made it my, uh, it's, it's, uh, over the years, I've come to the conclusion that it's not right for me to give any advice. And I was like, wow, that's kind of an interesting, like, statement from a dude who supposedly knows everything about psychology. He's 83 years old. He's seen it all. He's been through it all. He, everyone acknowledges his brilliance, and he won't give advice. Um, and that's a little bit how I feel when it comes to how should I go about doing mission. Look, the minute you give advice people start thinking that you're telling them they have to do it this way, they have to do it that way, or you should do it this way. And the reality is what God leads you to do is different than what he'll lead me to do. So what's critical is that our hearts are right and that we're listening to the Holy Spirit. So how you go on mission, I do not know. The Holy Spirit can and will show you what that means. But I think what's so compelling about this is how simple it can be. Let's go back to verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 1. He says, Now the tax collectors and the sinners were all drawing near to Jesus, to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. Jesus' mission to the world when he came was he ate with sinners and he received them. Think about the things you know about Jesus. Some of the most controversial things he did was simply who he hung out with and how he spent his time. The mission of God is not as complicated as we make it, but it does require us receiving people and eating with them, being people who are radically inclusive of other people. Like, this should not be a bro, like, this should not be some crazy thing. How we get the reputation for being exclusive, which I'll tell you, being in the corporate world, the thing I am most nervous about telling anybody is that, I'm a, that I was a pastor, especially because now I'm in, like, big tech, and that is, like, like, the, I can just feel the air get sucked out of the room. If they learned that I was a pastor, it's like, oh, okay. 
because this guy's going to judge me. This guy's going to, it's, but what we, what we have here is that we are a people that mission starts with receiving people and eating with them, right? I've spent lots of time in, in years of ministry strategizing about how to go to people, how to reach people, how to raise money to do mission. And I'm not belittling any of the things we've done or tried to do or the money that we're giving to different things. But I'm telling you, it's all about how I can go try to figure out how to reach people. And sometimes it's just simply inviting someone into my home. Now, here's the tell. Here's how we know that we have been on mission. Okay? It's not what you think. It's not a thousand converts and a hundred, you know, baptisms all the time. It's not like, you know, more people at your church this year than next year. Here's how we know that we are living on mission like Jesus did. It was in the clue in the very first beginning of this verse. Now the tax collectors and the sinners were drawing near to Jesus. It wasn't that he was inviting them into the synagogues. It was that they were inviting him into their lives. The tell that I am living on mission isn't that my neighbor came to eat with me, it's that my neighbor invited me to eat with him or her, right? That's that because there all of a sudden you see that reversal where these people did not trust the religious leaders, but they trusted Jesus. They invited him in. They trusted the son of the living God, the most pure and holy and righteous. Like if anyone should melt in inferiority to like, you know, because of their sin, it should be people in the presence of Jesus, right? I mean, he's the only one who hasn't made a mistake. And yet they felt the most comfortable with him than they did with the religious who were lost in their righteousness. So how do I go on mission there's lots of ways, there's lots of people, there's lots of people groups, but to live in the rhythm of mission is to really celebrate and enjoy being with all people, okay? If there's a group of people you don't want to be with, try being with them. That will put you on mission, and you'll know that it's successful when they invite you into their home without you asking. It's not as complicated as we make it, but it is radically difficult to live by. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> whenever I speak on this or um, consider just the way that you loved people and the way that you included and the way that you lived. Um, I'm constantly stuck, struck with my own um, inferiority. I'm constantly humbled. Um, and I think in light of this message and the gospel, that's probably the place I, I need to be. I, I, Lord, I do repent of all of my own self-righteousness, and there is and has been a lot of it. God, I repent of my own sin, and there is and has been and probably will continue to be a lot of it. But I recognize first and foremost that the gospel is sufficient and that the only thing we have to celebrate here is you and every child of yours that is coming to you, us 
and others included, Lord. We love you. In your son Jesus, it's in your name we pray. Amen.